At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. How many thank God for His Word? How many believe this to be the Word of God? All right. Uh, I got a little time, so let's get right into Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're at. We're in a series called Fulfilled. Now, I told you last week that that title has dual meaning as we look at this season of Christmas and the story of the, uh, of the coming of the Son of God into the world. On one level, what we're saying by titling this series Fulfilled is that Christ satisfies, that he satisfies the deepest longings of our heart and the deepest questions of our minds, that in Christ, your search for peace is found. That in Christ, your search for joy or freedom or salvation or forgiveness or mercy or grace. All, and let me just add on there, purpose and meaning as well. If you're searching for purpose, if you're searching for meaning in life, it is found in Christ. There's a lot of places you can search. Most roads will lead to disappointment in Christ you will find fulfillment or satisfaction. The second level in which we say this series is called Fulfilled is to say that the the story that we see in the gospel of the coming of Christ into the world fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament that God promised to Israel and to the world that he would send a rescuer, he would send a Messiah. This is why, friends, we believe that this is a divine book. I don't assume that everyone that's in here today, just because you're in church, is in agreement that this is a book that is different than your normal Barnes & Noble book. That this isn't just your normal Amazon book that you order, read, and toss on a bookshelf. No, this is words to live by. This is the eternal word of God. This, this uh, book that we have in our hands or on your devices is something special special, something unique. It is divine. And you may say that's a bold claim. How do you support it? Well, one of the ways that I support it is through the fulfillment of prophecy. Over and again, what you will find about this book is with superb accuracy, it predicts and it fulfills. It predicts and it fulfills. So today we're going to look at one of the fulfillment prophecies because uh, what Matthew is doing in his gospel, and I want to establish this, what Matthew is doing in his gospel is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there are four gospels in your Bible, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you may wonder why are there four counts of uh, the story of Jesus. I was interviewing uh, a guy earlier this week on my radio program, and he says to me, when I first came to faith, I decided I was going to read the Bible. I read the Bible, and I started with the Gospels. And at the end of John, I asked myself, why did they keep on killing Jesus over and over again? He literally thought that that kept happening over and over again. A true statement. I want you to think of the Gospels like this. Just like these cameras that you see up here, they're focused on the same scene, but from a different angle. And that's how the Gospels are. They're focused on the same person, Christ, 
on the same ministry, but they're looking at it from different angles, written to different audiences to accomplish a particular purpose. Matthew is writing to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that was promised to them in the Old Testament. He quotes Scripture over and again because he knows that they're familiar with Scripture. Mark is different. Mark is writing to the Romans who aren't familiar with Scripture. Now, he wants to convince them that Jesus is the true king, but what he uses is what they're familiar with is power. That's why when you read Mark, it looks like you're reading an ESPN highlight reel of one miracle after another because he's trying to, in quick and efficient fashion, prove to Romans who understand power that Jesus had all power. Luke is different. Luke is writing to the Greeks, and they were convinced by wisdom. They were philosophers by culture and by nature. That's why in Luke, you see Jesus' teaching ministry highlighted, where other gospel writers may uh, get uh, segments or snippets of Jesus' teaching ministry. Luke expands in great detail the teaching ministry of Jesus because he's trying to convince the Greeks that true wisdom resides in Christ. John is different. John is writing for the world to convince the world that Jesus is the king of the world, the eternal king that has come from heaven. That's why he starts his gospel with, in the beginning is the, uh, was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He is establishing the eternal rulership of Jesus as a member of the Godhead, and later on in chapter 1, verse 14 of John, he says, and he tabernacled among us. This is the purpose of the Gospels. So Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He does it two ways. First, in chapter 1 of Matthew, he does it through family line, or what we would call genealogy. Because the Jews knew, and they had been trained by the prophets of old, that the Messiah had to come through the birth line of David. King David, who was a type or figure in the Old Testament of Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And so by listing the genealogy, it's not for him a waste of time. Anybody ever read a genealogy and say, what is it here for? Right? Hard, tough treading to go through those genealogy chapters, right? Well, why did they do it? It's because they're trying to prove a point that Jesus is through the line of David, qualifying him to be a Messiah. Now, listen, this is important, is that if Israel took all those prophecies, put them on a checklist, only Jesus checks every box of being qualified to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Now, when we get into chapter 2, he's switching from family line to fulfill prophecy. And what he's showing is that Jesus fulfills prophecy both by where he was born in Bethlehem. We looked at that last week. And now we're going to see that he fulfills prophecy by being our rescuer. And I'm going to explain what that means. But first, let me ask this question. How many hate being trapped or locked in a room? How many hate that? Right? Now, you know you live in an affluent country with people, where people will pay as a form of entertainment to be locked in a room. And some of you know what I'm talking about. How many have ever gone to an escape room before? Now, you know that's warped, right? 
but we do that, and I've done it a couple of times. If you don't know this escape room phenomenon, the way that it works is you literally pay money along with your friends to be put into a room so that you will have a certain time period to get out. You're locked in that room. Now, in that room, there'll be clues, there'll be riddles, and if you figure those things out, it typically will lead to some combination that will open a safe, that will have a key that will let you out of the room. Now, during that whole time, for people who are paranoid and claustrophobic like me, can I get an amen? I'm not afraid of heights, I'm 6'6", but claustrophobia is my thing, right? Now, I hate being locked away, but here's the deal. Went through this whole exercise because my friends told me it was fun, they lied, and I'm in this thing, right? And I'm zero help. I literally am zero help. Teaching the Bible, I'm cool with. Figuring out riddles, I'm not. But we have never, in the times that I've gone there, gotten out in time. But there's somebody who's watching from, from, with, uh, from a different room with cameras on our, room, on our room, and they will sometimes come over speakers and say, hey, here's a tip because you're taking too much time. Clearly, you're a loser, so let me help you along the way. And I appreciate those folks who intervene. Well, in similar fashion, all of us are prisoners. That's the verdict of the Bible. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need someone from the outside to rescue us. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't figure out the riddle of salvation. But God has left clues, and one of which we see today. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 13 reads as this. Now, when they had departed, that they, if you remember, are the magi, the wise men who had come to visit King Herod. Herod said, hey, I'm looking for this Messiah. Now, his desire was not to worship him, but that's what he told them. They said, we have seen a star in the sky. We know where this Messiah is going to be born. He says, go find him so that I may worship him. But an angel warned them after they had found Jesus and the Holy Family and given them gifts. An angel said to these magi, don't go back the other way. Don't go back to, to, uh, to, to uh, Herod. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. There's a lot that's going on here to unpack, but let me just give you a big picture of what's happening here. Jesus is clearly under threat, and the tension of the text is a big question. Who will win? Who will win between the earthly king who wants to destroy the plan of God and the heavenly king of kings who have come to fulfill the plan of God? And God in that moment where it seems like Herod, a man of great power, was going to be able to prevail, had all the means in the world to not only find Jesus uh, and, and Mary and Joseph, but to destroy them. In that moment, God shows Herod, and by extension, us, that earthly kings have some power, but only he has all power. That was a great place to say amen. 
And you and I could learn a lesson about how we should relate to political figures. That as we see political figures come and go, it shouldn't bend us out of shape too much. We shouldn't allow our emotions to get too frustrated because God's eternal cosmic plan will not be disrupted. I don't care who sits on earthly thrones, the king of heaven has already spoken and established our king, the Messiah, Jesus, and nothing and no one will be able to thwart the plan of God. How many thank God for his sovereignty, his power, his authority, and his control? And so he is in control of all things. But Herod devises his plan that he wants to destroy the life of Jesus And just then, an angel steps in. Now, here's what you need to know about Herod. Herod's this terribly insecure leader. I alluded to that last week. History will tell us, Philo, who was a historian during this time, will tell us that Herod had 10 wives. There's a lot I could say about that, Uh, but I won't. But uh, he killed one of his wives because he thought she was a threat to his throne. He ended up killing two of his sons earlier in life, a third son right before he died because he thought they were threats to his throne. He ended up killing a brother-in-law because he thought he was a threat to his throne. So you see Herod as a brutal, fierce, maniacal leader who had no problem killing people that he thought was a threat to his throne. So when it comes to this Messiah figure, and how would he have known that Jesus was the Messiah? It's because under his rulership, he was like a governor under Caesar, under his rulership would have been a province called Israel, and in Israel would have been scribes and prophets and all of these uh, scholars of the law. He would have no doubt heard them talking about the long-awaited Messiah. Now, this Messiah that they were waiting for, they understood as bringing to to them geopolitical freedom, that when the Messiah comes, he will deliver us from the occupation of the Roman Empire. What they didn't understand fully, what Herod didn't understand, is that Jesus was coming to do way more than that. He was coming to do way more than what Moses did in freeing Israel from bondage. He was coming to free all men from the spiritual prison of sin, death, and hell. And praise God that he was, because we get a chance to be included in that mission. But Jesus is born now. Herod understands this Messiah is going to come and try to topple my control, so let me try to wipe him out. The angel steps in and says to Joseph, notice the language that he says to Joseph. He says, not take your wife and the baby to Egypt. That's what we would think he would say. You come, you're talking to a husband, you think he would say, hey, take your wife, take the baby, go to Egypt. Notice the wording, take the child and his mother to Egypt. Now, why word it that way? Because what the angel is doing is centering the child as the hero of the story. And the hero of redemption, the hero of our salvation is not Mary is not Joseph, is not some other saintly figure from church history's past. 
The hero of our salvation story is Jesus. The only way, the only truth, the only life, salvation comes by him alone. And here's the good news. I got access to God, not because I have to go through pastor or priest or deacon or saint. I get access to God because of my relationship with Jesus. Christ alone gives us access to God. That's good news, friends. Here's what uh, this story wants us to understand, that what makes Mary significant, Joseph significant, and you and I significant is our relationship to Jesus. That's what brings significance in life. What gave Mary significance is that she was the mother of the Messiah. What gave Joseph significance, this wasn't the first time he was visited by an angel. Remember, before the baby was born, he was visited by an angel who said, don't put Mary away because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He was reminded that God was at work. And what gave him significance was the connection and the job he had to protect them from this moment right here so that the Messiah could grow, live a sinless life, die on that cross, uh, shed innocent blood so that you and I, through faith in him, could experience forgiveness, salvation, and the erasing of our sin debt. Glory to God. And so he says to them, go to Egypt. Now, why go to Egypt? Two reasons, practical and prophetic. The first reason you go to Egypt practically is during that day, Egypt was a sanctuary land for the Jews. Now, there's a lot of background in this that I don't have time to explain, but during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was an attempt by the Greeks to take over the temple where the Jews worshiped. And there was a family known as the Maccabees who stood against the Greeks as they tried to do that. And they were able, through their revolt, to withhold the Greek army. It's a phenomenal story of the Maccabean revolt. But what happens during that time, because of persecution, many Jews flee to Egypt. And Alexandria, Egypt, becomes a sanctuary place where they are given full rights of citizenship. They're able to have full participation in worship. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great even builds for them a temple there so they can continue on their worship practices. It is estimated by scholars during that time about a million Jews would have lived there. So practically, it was going to be a wise place for them to go. But how does a man like Joseph from a poor family with a young wife afford to go to Egypt? Like, I don't know about you, I can't just uproot my family and go away to Egypt and just hang out for a year plus, right? Well, how could he afford to do this? Remember, those wise men brought him, brought Jesus gifts, the holy family gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Why were they given those gifts? Because they could exchange those gifts for the means they needed to stay in Egypt until the Pharaoh, until rather Herod died. And so God was providing for them. And again, let me just say, this story isn't here just for historical purposes, but it's sending home a message of salvation that God will provide for you and I as well. That our job is simply to obey over and again. What do you see in the life of Joseph? He doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't consult with friends. Once he's heard from God and been convinced by God that something is his will, he obeys and he leaves the details to 
God and trust him for it, you and I need to live the same way. That once we have heard the voice of God through his word or his servants, we need to be immediately obedient, trusting that God will provide for what he's called us to do. Why Egypt? Well, there's a second reason. It's prophecy. You see, God had called, according to the last sentence of verse number uh, 15, God, through the prophets, had, had spoken that out of Egypt I would call my son. Out of Egypt I would call my son. Now, Egypt should, when you read that, if you're familiar with Scripture, should automatically make you think of another great figure in church history, uh, biblical history, Moses. How many ever heard of Moses? Right? Now, Moses was a messenger of God, and he was sent to help to rescue Israel out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, to help them to literally exit out of Egypt. And so he goes to the Pharaoh, and he says to the Pharaoh, on behalf of God, let my people go. What happens? Pharaoh's heart is hard. He says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. They're my slaves. We need them to build our kingdom. They're going to remain here. And so what happens? God steps in, and he sends plague after plague. The purpose of that story is to help us to know, not that Moses was the rescuer, no. Moses was the messenger. God God was the rescuer. He was the one that brought deliverance. And eventually, God brought Pharaoh, who was the leader of the most powerful nation at that time, to his knees. And he says, go and take your cattle with you. I don't want any parts to do with you. Your God is too strong. I praise God that our God is that mighty, that strong, that glorious, friends. The same God of Moses is about to show up now. Now, what Moses says during his day is there's another one who is coming who's even greater than me. And so Israel's been waiting for this other one to come. And Hosea prophesies about this. I want to turn real quickly to the book of Hosea. Keep your finger there. Now, for those of you who don't know where to find Hosea in your Bible, we love you enough to put it on the screen. But Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament prophesies about 740 years before the life of Jesus. And he says in verse number one of chapter 11, Hosea chapter 11, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew picks up on this prophecy and he says, dual fulfillment, Yes, God called Israel out of Egypt when Pharaoh was there, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy because all of that son talk was going to be fulfilled in the coming of the Son of God into the world. And what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea. Friends, this is important because what this tells me is that history is not aimless, is that history has its cohesiveness in Christ. That if you want to understand how history works, look to Jesus because through the lens of the cross of Christ, everything makes sense. This is what C.S. Lewis, a great writer, said earlier in his uh, writing ministry. He says, I believe in Jesus for the same reason I believe in the Son, not just because I can see it, 
it, but through it, I can see everything else. And this is how the cross works. When you look through the lens of the cross, everything in life finds purpose, placement, and fulfillment. And this is what Jesus came to establish. Now, I told you this was all about rescue and deliverance because we all need rescue and deliverance. This is about more than just the deliverance of a nation. Moses came to deliver Israel. Jesus came to deliver all of the world from sin. That those from every nation, from every tongue, from every generation who called upon his name can be delivered or set free or rescued from the escape room of life. Many of us have not been able to figure out the code of salvation. Maybe we haven't been able to figure out the riddle of life. Well, the Bible cracks the code and tells us salvation is found in Jesus. Now, every single one of us knows what it's like to be a prisoner or to be bound, to be bound to sin, to behavior patterns that we wish we didn't do, to addictions that we have, maybe even to a double life. Maybe you're sitting in here and you got two lives going on, the one that everybody thinks they know about you and the one that's really true about you. And if you've ever been in any type of bondage, addiction, sin, whatever, an affair, you will know that there comes a point, if you're in so deep, that you begin to wonder, is salvation even possible? Can I really be rescued from this? And if you're not careful, you'll get to the place where you will begin to doubt that you can be rescued from it. And when you get to that place, you really start thinking stupid and you start making plans to live in Egypt forever. God never called you to live in Egypt forever. Egypt is always synonymous with being in bondage. God has come to set his people free from bondage that includes you and me. He sees us locked in the prison of our sins, our lies, our dualistic behavior. He sees us locked in that prison and he can set us free. He can set us free. Romans, really quickly, keep your finger there. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. And Paul says this in verse number 15. Romans chapter 7, verse number 15. Paul describing what it was like for him to go through his own prison of sin. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Anybody ever been there before? I was interviewing on my radio program not too long ago, a friend of mine who... um, lived a transgendered life for a season, had gone through this mutilation of her own body, had tried to live as a man, although she came to recognize it in the very fiber of her being that she was a woman and no surgery could change that. And she said, I, it, it came to a point where I didn't want to live the way that I live, but I'd already changed my body and I felt like there was no going back and I felt trapped and she identified with what Paul says. I don't understand my own actions, the things that I want to do. I don't do the things that I hate. I keep on doing. And then going on in verse number 19, he goes on to say, for I do not do the good I want But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever been there before? 
Every single one of us could raise our hands to that. We've been in those seasons where, man, I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. And then I want to do this, but I don't keep doing the thing that I want to do. And it got so bad to Paul that he writes in verse 24. Look at what he says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Man, he felt like a wreck on the inside. Man, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm just like the worst type of person is how he felt. And maybe you've been there before. Then he asked the most important important question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I feel like I'm dying. And he says, who will deliver me? Now, I love the way he phrases the question. Who will deliver me, not what will deliver me? I know what it's like to be up at night because of anxiety or stress. And when you're up at night because of anxiety and stress, those infomercials start rolling, right? And next thing you know, there's a pill that tells you, you can grow your hair back. It's a lie. I tried. I'm telling you, it is a lie or you can lose 50 pounds, or this will take your wrinkles away. Let me just tell you, there is no pill that will transform the human heart. There's no pill that will set you free from the bondage of sin and iniquity and duplicity and addiction that we will find ourselves in. But there is a who that can do it. And who is it? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many praise God that Jesus Jesus cracks the coal and sets us free. And are there anybody, is there anybody in this room today that is a living witness of his grace that he can set you free? Even when you think you're in too deep, even when you think you cannot be transformed. Going back to my interview with my friend who went through the transition of her body, God gloriously in his mercy and his grace loved her, brought her back to a place of freedom and understanding who she is so that she can live in the fullness of his love. And today, I'm wanting you to know that even when you feel trapped in Egypt, that Jesus came so you can get out of Egypt. But how do you experience deliverance? Man, I'm already over time and I'm only on point one. How do you experience deliverance? Well, first you gotta know that you need deliverance. You gotta acknowledge it. But secondly, you gotta respond to God's call back home again. Look real quickly. Verse number 16 with me. It says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, I'm sorry, verse number 19, rise, take the child and his mother, notice the pattern again, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, there's that pattern again, and went to the land of Israel. He went back home again. God called them home and God is calling us home. You know, I went on a vacation during Thanksgiving. And I don't know about you, I love vacations. But there comes a point, maybe you've experienced this before, where a vacation can be too long. And anybody ever experienced a trip? You enjoyed the trip. But how many agree with me with that saying, there's no place like home? How many believe that, right? We are wired for home. And maybe you've taken a vacation to a land called iniquity. Maybe you've taken a trip to a place called sin and it's been fun. You've hit the nightclubs. You've had all the fun and entertainment anybody can have. 
but your longing for home, God is calling you home again. And the real question is, will you come back home? You know, this whole process was terribly inconvenient. And a lot of people won't experience deliverance because, let's be honest, it wasn't easy for Joseph to take his wife and child and go to Egypt. That wasn't convenient. To disrupt his life, that wasn't convenient. And a lot of you may be thinking about the disruptions that come from obeying God, and I'm not going to lie to you, it is terribly inconvenient. But the other choice is to stay on the path you're on and die. Maybe physically, but maybe not that. Maybe it's the death of your family or your marriage, or your hopes, or your dreams, or your kid's future. You gotta make a decision. Sometimes embracing the inconvenient is exactly what you need to do in order to experience home again. So because of time, I'm gonna stop. But I wanna stop and ask this question. Is God calling you home today? Is this message of the deliverance and the freedom that comes through Jesus for you today? And if it is, the day that you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your heart. Just simply obey. And God will work out the details and you will say, man, I can't see it working out. And I'm sure Joseph didn't see it working out. But just like God got Joseph and Mary and Jesus safely home, he will bring you and me safely home as well. Everybody stand. We won't dismiss because of song today. We won't dismiss by worship or singing, but we're gonna dismiss by you just searching your heart. And maybe you can close your eyes for just a moment, I'll pray. Maybe you can search your heart. And maybe you can ask yourself, Lord, is this message for me? Are you calling me home? And if that's you, today I would love to pray with you. I'll stay up front, I'll pray with you. Or you could go into the lobby. We got staff and team there. They can pray with you. Stop at the connect desk. But whatever you do, don't leave in the same escape room that you came in. And if you're watching online, just type the word connect. Father, today we thank you that Jesus has come to rescue us. Thank you for your salvation. I pray that all those who need it will come home today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.